0: Hey, what up? This is Sheggs from Sheggsandstuff.com, and this is part four of a blog series through the seven letters in the book of Revelation. And this week's blog post is titled, When You Absolutely Have to End a Friendship. To find out more about this blog, please visit the site at www.sheggsandstuff.com. And on the site, through biblical teaching and encouragement, we remind you that God the Father not only loves you, but still likes you. Now, I recognize that what I'm going to say in this blog post is easier said than done, but the reality is that some things simply need to come to an end. So in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he tells the story of a busload of people who journey to the outskirts of heaven on their way to hell. During the tour of the outskirts of heaven, many of the bus drivers are actually turned off or intimidated by the atmosphere of heaven and actually run back to the comfort of their bus. One individual, however, a ghost who is continually pestered by a very talkative red lizard, and the lizard is really symbolic of lust and sin and those things that rob us of our joy for the Lord. but um, anyway, he has this red lizard constantly perched on his shoulder um, as he presses into the surroundings of heaven, anyway as he gets closer to heaven, he encounters this ghost encounters a very fiery angel. Well, C.S. Lewis uses the ensuing encounter between the angel and the ghost as a parable of God's invitation to break the power of sin in our life and to transform it into something for his glory. Now, for the purpose of this blog post, I'm going to use that same illustration, that story, to illustrate what it looks like for you and I to sever off unhealthy, toxic relationships that might be leading us to compromise our integrity. So in the story... The great flaming angel approaches the ghost and seeks his permission to rid him of this burdensome red lizard on his shoulder. Now, the ghost initially uh, agrees at first, but actually backs away when it dawns on him that killing the lizard will involve some level of pain on his part. While the angel makes his request again, seeking the ghost's permission to kill the red lizard lizard but again the ghost complains about the pain he's going to have to endure as a result of being separated from his beast of a friend the angel keeps persistent may i kill it the ghost replies well honestly i don't think there's the slightest necessity for that I'm, I'm sure that i'll be able to keep it in order now some other day perhaps the ghost tried to argue there is no other day replied the angel the ghost countered get back you're, you're burning me how can i how can i tell you to kill me you, you'd kill me too if you did the angel said, it's not so. Well, well, you're hurting me now. Well, I never said I would not hurt you. I said I wouldn't kill you. And so on and on their conversation went until finally the lizard itself chimed in in a last bid, desperate attempt to save its own life. And the, careful, uh, the lizard said to the man, to the ghost, it said, be careful. He, he can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and, and he will, then you'll be without me forever and ever. I'll be good, I promise. I admit I've gone too far in the past, but but I promise I won't do it again. Ignoring the voice of the red lizard, the angel again sought the ghost's permission to once and for all kill the creature. Well, in desperation to finally be free from this lizard... The ghost relented and permitted the angel to do as he pleased. And and so Lewis goes on to capture beautifully what happens next. Here's what Lewis says. He says, next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard. The burning one, that's the angel, closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and, and, and shook back and forth, and then flung it broken back on the turf. Then I saw, unmistakably solid, But growing every moment solider, the ghost materialized into a man, not much smaller than an angel. At the same time, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Suddenly, I stirred back, rubbing my eyes, and what stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen silvery white but with mane and a tail of gold the man now free from his torment climbed upon the stallion that had been his sin and rode it into glowing sunrise towards the savior and that's from page 106 to 1012 in c.s lewis's book the great divorce and so this story this illustration really causes or forces you and i to check our shoulders to see if we have our own version of a red lizard You see, like the ghost in Lewis's story, some Christians are presently yoked in a relationship with their own red lizard, a relationship which may actually be proving to be spiritually toxic to their faith. And so in this fourth part of our blog series, Through the Seven Letters of Revelation, we're going to meet a church congregation in the city of Pergamum. It's the third church Jesus is writing to thus far in the series. And this city, or this church in the city of Pergamum has really fallen into, this, into the same trap, the, a church that has compromised its values and literally allowed Satan to get a foothold in its community. And, and Jesus has some very strong words for her in the passage we'll be looking at today in chapter two of the book of Revelation. And so Jesus has some strong words for her as well as for us if indeed there are spiritually toxic relationships in our lives that we're allowing to carry on. And so here is the story, or here's the, here really is the narrative of how to break free and bring to an end those unhealthy relationships. It starts with what I describe as a killer opening line. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2, the first verse, 12 to 3, the first verse in the letter to the Pergamum. Jesus says to them, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. All right, let's pause there for a second, because this introduction from Jesus Christ, let's call it what it is. It's a little scary, right? It is not the opening line that you ever want to read in a letter or an email from a loved one. In fact, to give you some perspective on how troubling this introduction is, compare it to what Jesus or how Jesus introduces himself to the previous two churches. To the folks in the church of Ephesus, Jesus says in Revelation 2.1, he says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That, that's encouraging, right? To the congregation in the church of Smyrna, Jesus says in Revelation 2.8, he says, These are the words of him who was first and last, who died, who came back to life again. Like Both of these are uplifting, right? But then to the folks in the church of Pergamum, Jesus essentially opens his letter with this terrifying picture. He says these are the words, or he essentially says these are the words of the one wielding a sharp double-edged machete. And oh, by the way, I also see that Satan has an apartment in your backyard, right? And, And so this immediately tells us that something is seriously wrong in the church of Pergamum. And the city itself is probably not the most hospitable place to live in. So here's why let's talk about when Satan really moves in on your territory twice in verse 13, Jesus actually points out two times in verse 13 points out that Satan lives in your city. In fact, he says Satan has his throne in their city. It's a troubling thought when I think about it, because back then that's where Satan has his throne. But it's a troubling, troubling thought when I think about it today, because it makes me wonder what city in the world Satan presently has his throne. Now, I don't think any of us can say for certain where the center of Satan's activity is, but can we at least agree on not rolling out the red carpet for him? And I say that because I recently came across an article about uh, New York's temporarily shelved project to rebuild replicas of the Ark uh, arch from Sirius Temple of Baal. And there, you can go on the on the blog post and actually click on the link for that to read up on it. It's actually been shelved, but they were actually considering creating a replica of this um, of this uh, temple, this arch from the temple of. Uh, uh, bail which was bothersome anyway whatever the case may be um, if you want to know what happens when you let satan move into your territory or hang out on your front porch let's go back to the city of pergamum and see what actually happens so the city of pergamum itself was actually one of the most influential cities in the roman empire in its day it was an important center for pagan and imperial religion in fact the people of pergamum were known as the temple keepers of asia And that's because the city hosted temples dedicated to Asclepius, that's the god of healing, to Zeus, in whose honor an especially massive stone altar was built and set on the Acropolis, one of the highest points in the city. And and, and the third god really was to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma, right? So so Satan felt at home in the city and established his, his throne because of the level of idolatry in that city. Well, the Christians in that city of Pergamum lived in constant danger of harm from the emperor worship cult. Remember, they they worshipped the emperor Augustus as a god. So whereas Christians in other cities were primarily in danger on the one day of the year when they were required to offer sacrifices to the emperor, the believers in Pergamum were in danger every day of the year because of the strong demonic influence in the city. And so living as a Christian in Pergamum in those days may have been indistinguishable from living as a Christian in Ramadi, Iraq, under ISIS's rule today, right? If you read articles online about Christians in ISIS-run territory, it's like living in hell. Well, except in Pergamum back then, instead of an Islamic Shiite agenda, it was literally Satan's agenda, and so it's this small gathering of believers in this demon-run city that Jesus writes the letter in Revelation 2, 12-17. And it's also for this reason, this demonic influence, that Jesus introduces himself with such fierce imagery. And so he says, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, verse 12, he says, uh, in verse 12. So he was trying to let them know, Jesus was essentially trying to let the believers know that that he too knows how to battle and bears a razor-sharp double-edged sword that penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so Christ starts this picture to let the believers to know, hey, yes, Satan is strong, but I'm greater. And this is vital for every follower of Jesus Christ to grasp, especially in the heat of the battle of a spiritual attack. In other words, you as a follower of Jesus Christ, are not powerless, nor are you weaponless in this fight against the enemy of your souls. in fact, second uh, Corinthians chapter ten, verse four to six talks about the fact that uh, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, the weapons we fight with as believers have divine power to demolish strongholds, and we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient Christ, right? So, So we're not weaponless. Christ, who is seated far above every spiritual authority, has delegated his authority to you and I to stand against the fiery attacks of Satan and has provided us with a spiritual armor to withstand whatever may come. So my point is this, you're not a victim. Stand, submit to God, resist the enemy, and fight back. Well, that's how Jesus introduces himself. Now, for the believers living in Pergamum, they not only withstood, which they did do what Jesus said, but they not only withstood the direct onslaught of Satan, but Jesus himself commends them for their faithfulness to him in a place where they could have easily assimilated into a very idolatrous culture. Like in verse 13, Jesus says to them, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. And you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So the believers love the Lord. They're faithful to him in spite of the fact that they're facing opposition from Satan himself. Now, tradition tells us a little bit about Antipas and suggests that Antipas was probably a pastor in Pergamum and was actually martyred by being burned to death inside a hollowed brass bowl. One accounts reports this. It says, they, that's Antipas' persecutors, um, became enraged as wild beasts and dragged the aged Antipas to the temple of Artemis before which stood an ox cast in bronze. They heated the bronzed ox and hurled the servant of God into the red-hot molten ox as he burned to death. And from within the molten ox, St. Antipas glorified God with thanksgiving as once Jonah did in the belly of the whale or the three youths in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. Antipas prayed for his flock and for the entire world until his soul parted from his weakened body and ascended among the angels into the kingdom of Christ. And so like Antipas, the Pergamon believers were really fighting a great fight, even though it came at the cost of some of their lives. They always remained true to the name of Christ. Now, while all of that was good and true, the believers in Pergamum unfortunately left a few cracks open through which Satan, right, the red lizard, right, had slipped into their church. Now, I'll let Jesus himself tell you what happened. Verse 14 to 15 of Revelation 2 says, this is Jesus speaking to them about what's really going on in their church. Jesus says to them, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, in order to understand the problem that Jesus is referring to, you need to know the story of Balaam, if you're not familiar with it, so Balaam is actually an Old Testament character, right? So in the Old Testament of book, of, the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 25 and chapter 31, we are introduced to a Moabite king named Balak, and Balak wanted to weaken and destroy the Israelites, who on their way to Canaan, the Promised Land, had moved in on his territory, and so Balak sends for a rogue prophet named. Balaam to place a curse on the Israelites with the promise of giving him a hefty financial compensation. Balaam, however, was instructed by God to do no such thing. Instead, he was told by God to actually bless instead of curse the Israelites. While eventually realizing the futility of trying to go against God's direct instruction, Balaam took a backdoor approach to ensure that he received a monetary, monetary reward from Balak. And so since Balaam couldn't curse Israel directly, he came up with an evil scheme for Israel to bring a curse upon themselves. Balaam essentially counseled the king, Balak, to have his Moabite women seduce the Israelites' men so that their hearts would be gradually drawn away from devotion to God. And so part of the seduction involved the Israelite men engaging in sexual orgies with the Midianite women, which involved eating foods, sacrifice to idols, and the actual worship of idols, Baal of Peor. And so for this, God actually was very vexed and God actually plagued the Israelites. And in one day, about 24,000 men died and, and Balaam himself was actually eventually killed. Well, as a result of this very devious act, devious act by Balaam, Balaam's name from that event became synonymous with using God's gift for illicit purposes. And so the false teaching of Balaam that Jesus speaks of in Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 is actually the philosophy that one can fully be immersed in the lust of the world yet still wholeheartedly serve God. It's actually a false teaching. It's a wrong teaching that you can be totally in the world with the lust of the world yet still wholeheartedly serve God. In fact, several Bible passages speaks of, speak of Balaam's deceptive philosophy of ministry. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, the message version of the Bible says that uh, those who follow the teaching of Balaam are the ones who have left the main road and are directionless, having taken the way of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophet who turned profiteer, a connoisseur of evil. Jude, the 11th verse of Jude, describes those who follow Balaam's philosophy as, as those who have been sucked into Balaam's error by greed. And then earlier in verse 4 of Jude, Jude himself explains how Balaam's philosophy of ministry affects the church. He says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your church saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral Lives, And so when we take all of these together, it becomes apparent who and what Jesus was speaking of when he says to the church in Pergamum that there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam and and who also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't have much details on, on what the teaching of the Nicolaitans are. So we can safely assume that it was essentially the same thing as the teaching of Balaam. And so here's what's happening. Clearly, basically, some some ill-intentioned people who we'll describe as the red lizards had finagled their way into a position of influence in the Pergamum Church and were convincing the congregation that they could engage in all the idolatrous affairs in their demon run city and still wholeheartedly serve God. Right? So you can have your you can have your cake and eat it, right? So, so whereas Jesus speaks of his followers being in the world, but not of the world, in other words, we're to live as missionaries with a missionary mindset, um, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans were encouraging the Christians at Pergamum that they were not only in the world, but were of the world, and needed to be loved by the world, and should have no problem compromising with the world. And essentially, the, that that mentality is the modern-day belief that a little sin... But a little compromise here and there in our faith isn't so bad, especially if it results in some form of personal profit, or even better yet, if it'll bring people to Jesus, right? So we try to justify our sin. Well, Jesus, of course, would beg to differ because according to Galatians chapter 5 verse 9, it only takes a minute amount of yeast to permeate an entire loaf of bread. In other words, it only takes a little bit to slip in before the whole bunch is corrupted. In Balaam's day, it only took one small flirty look, one, one small flirting look from a Midianite women, woman, woman, for most of Israel to fall into apostasy, and unfortunately, the same thing was happening and had happened in the Church of Pergamum. But what Jesus seemed to have the greatest problem with, however, was the fact, it wasn't just the fact that these folks had crept into the church, it was the fact that the believers who had remained faithful to his name were actually tolerating the false teaching in their church. I mean, they had become super comfortable with the red lizard remaining on their shoulders, right? It's what he means when he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you, that there are some among you who are doing these things. And so Jesus essentially throws down the gauntlet. He basically goes, look, deal with this or else I I will. So let's pause here for a second and and ask the question. Why do you think the Jesus-loving believers in Pergamum were allowing the demon-influenced false teachers to carry on their unbiblical agenda in the church? Let me try and answer that question. Because I've grown up in the church and I've seen some things. So let me propose a few reasons that I've observed why we sometimes allow these kinds of things to carry on in the church see it's it, it's possible that the folks corrupting the church in pergamum may have been family members or even key friends of key leaders in the church therefore man don't don't shake things up right uh, it's even possible that these folks corrupting the church causing problem may have been some of the biggest financial givers in the church and therefore their expulsion out of the church might have resulted in a financial crisis for the church so so don't touch them, right Or or it's also very possible that the believers in Pergamum simply had not grounded themselves in biblical truth so that false teachings actually appeared to be biblically sound. Now, all of these are speculatory, right? But they're certainly all plausible. (laughs) Otherwise, why would they tolerate such toxic relationships in their congregation? Allow me to turn this mirror around for a moment and ask you some very personal questions. Are there presently relationships in your life that are spiritually toxic to your maturity as a follower of Jesus Christ? Like, think about that for a second. Perhaps you're a group of friends, or perhaps it's one person who is drawing your affections further and further away from Christ. Like, in other words, I'm asking, is there a red lizard on your shoulder? The question that I'm asking you is the same question that was being asked of the congregants in Pergamum. And it's this question for you now, and it's this, like, why... If there are these relationships in your life, the question is, why are you tolerating these spiritually unhealthy relationships in your life instead of just nipping them in the bud? I recognize it's hard to say goodbye, but listen, Jesus tells you and I that we must. When we are in relationships with people who are toxic to our faith and causing us to compromise our faith, man, we got to say goodbye. Whatever your reason is for wanting to hang on to those relationships, and whatever the reason the believers in Pergamum had, here's what Jesus has to say to them in verse 16. Jesus says, repent therefore. In other words, end those relationships, sever off those relationships. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, if you don't wise up, and sever those relationships quickly, Jesus is saying, I will step in myself and cut them to pieces with my sword-sharp words. Now, I don't know what that looks like in real-life relationships, but here's what I do know. Swords hurt when they slice, and harsh but true words can cut deep. And if I'm in a close relationship with someone experiencing either one of those, man, I'm bound to experience some of its residual impact. And so as a result of this, let's be honest with ourselves, if this, if it's true that we have relationships in our lives that are toxic to our faith, men, some painful surgery needs to be done. And I suspect that in such a scenario in your life, if you indeed do have those kinds of people in your life, man, I tell you what, it's no point pulling off the bandage gently. You, you may need to abruptly break off contact from those healthy, toxic friendships, and make no mistake about it, man, I know a lot of thoughts are going through your mind right now. It'll not be easy, nor will it be fun, but man, it's the right thing to do long term. And you may need to utter something similar to this to a friend of yours where you go, hey, in order for me to mature in my faith in Christ and to remain spiritually healthy, man, I cannot continue in this manner of friendship with you. And so I think it's best we bring this to an end. So you close off Facebook contact, you close off Instagram contact, you close off, So right, you end that relationship. And listen to this, like the red lizard in Lewis's story that we looked at earlier, toxicity, right? Toxic friendships will fight to maintain their hold on your life. Forgive me, I'll change, things will be different. The truth is, it won't. You simply have to desire spiritual health, Jesus himself, more than you desire, whatever fulfillment you perceive you're receiving in what's clearly an unhealthy relationship. And I don't know how else to say that, right? Some unhealthy people in our lives simply need to be gone if you are going to be healthy and if you're going to grow now as in the two previous letters we've looked at with obedience to Jesus' instruction to be clear everything i just said is not just a great adv- it's not just good advice a good counsel these are instructions from jesus himself of what it means to really walk with him so as in the two previous accounts we looked at with obedience to Jesus' words come several mysterious rewards there's two of them actually in this letter to the Church in Pergamum starting in verse 17. Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious. In other words, to the one who goes who who ends those unhealthy relationships, right? You 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 end your relationship with the Balaamites, with the Nicolaitans. you get rid of the red lizards, you 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 sever off those unhealthy, toxic relationships. Jesus says, when you do those things, verse 17, I will give you some of the hidden manna. And I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So let's talk about these rewards. Let's start with manna. Now, let's talk about manna, what it is. So if you recall the episode of the Israelites in the Sinai desert after they fled from Egypt, you might remember in that account in Exodus chapter 16, um, you'll remember that God actually provided the Israelites with food from heaven literally like, like in the evenings he would send them poultry dinners quail falling from the sky and then in the mornings he rained down some sort of honeyed bread called manna and so in that arid environment, in that desert-like environment, God nourished their physical needs with heavenly food. That's what manna is. Well, the promise of Jesus to the church in Pergamum and to us is a reassurance that if we sever off those spiritually toxic relationships with the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, whatever that represent in our lives, even if it comes at a financial or emotional cost to them and to us, Jesus is saying that he will replenish our needs Hence the promise of of hidden manna. Once again, let's turn this mirror around on ourselves for one moment, especially if you're struggling right now with the thought of severing off emotionally toxic or spiritually unhealthy relationships in your life. So let me ask you this. What is it that you are afraid of will happen if you sever off those unhealthy relationships for the sake of Jesus Christ? Like what is it you think you'll miss out on or lose out on? And to be clear, let me just let me clear this up. Right. Um, I am not speaking of marriage relationships calling you to end a relationship. This is this is not about marriage, even though there is some toxicity in marriage. I think that those should be worked out. I think that that's a whole other blog post and I have my very strong opinions on what to do. So I just want to clear up. I'm not talking about Using this blog post as a justification to get a divorce, I'm talking about relationships, friendships that are unhealthy, right? So, even so, this goes as far as if you are engaged to an um, um, unhealthy person, right? So, this is not about marriage, it's about relationships. Now, um, whatever it is you're afraid may happen, Jesus is essentially saying here that um, you need not worry and you need not fear. Whatever it is that you think you're getting from them, um, Jesus says, I, I have greater, more to offer you like in the same manner that God rained down physical nourishment from heaven to replenish the Israelites' appetite in the desert. So in the same way, God is promising that he will replenish your unfulfilled needs if you honor him in those relationships. And so hidden manna awaits you if you follow through on this. So that's the first promise. The second promise is more, really, it's a promise of a very, personal gift a unique piece of white gemstone with your new name written on it which jesus says is a name known only to him who receives it now i don't know exactly what the stone means or what it looks like but here's what i do know i'll give you some facts stats here there's there are seven billion people on earth right 2.2 uh, billion of those folks profess to be christians Now, when you factor in all the numbers of Christians who have lived and died since the birth of the church, man, we can surmise that there are many billions of believers in God's presence, right? That's a lot of people and that's a lot of names to remember. Like, (laughs) I could barely remember the name of some of my cousins. And so this promise of this personal stone in the midst of a massive multitude of humanity Really, what Jesus is saying here is that not only will he know your name in the midst of this giant crowd, but man, in spite of how big we all are, he will know you personally more than you know yourself, right? Though you're one in several billion, Jesus' knowledge of and relationship with you will be deeply personal. That's the promise of the white stone. Furthermore, think about the fact that he says a new name, right? Because a new name indicates a new story and a new destiny, right? And so then, if you and I honor Jesus' words, and we do the hard work of severing off those spiritually unhealthy relationships, Jesus is promising us, not only that he'll know us personally, but man, he's also promising us a new sense of adventure and mission in the world that he will establish. It's a future promise. In other words, the question of, Why am I here and what's my purpose in life will immediately become as crystal clear as a scene on a 4K Ultra HD screen. In other words, you will finally know, see and live the life you've always wanted to live because it'll be the life that Jesus has plotted for you. But all of that relies on you cutting off those unhealthy relationships, which in reality may be keeping you from seeing Christ as he truly is. That, my friends, those two rewards are worth giving up some unhealthy relationships for. And so I pray for you this week. I pray that as you have to make some really tough decisions about friendships, I pray that the Spirit of God would grant you the boldness um, to act on God's word, that he would give you uh, wisdom as to how to go about it, uh, knowledge on, on what to say, but wisdom as to how to go about it, And that you would look to put God first. You would look to put Christ first at the center of your life and in all your relationships. And as you do, man, you would experience, even now, some of that hidden manner, that replenishment, that spiritual replenishment in your soul. And that God would really give you that clear sense of mission, purpose, and that sense that he knows you personally. So I pray the peace of God would go with you this week. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you. Please check out the rest of the uh, blog and our blog, www.sheggsandstuff.com. God bless you. Have a great week.